Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Ever since I got this new pulpit, I say I because I take personal ownership of it suddenly. Ever since GCA got this new pulpit, I have established a sort of rule, at least a practice, in line with the Protestant practice of how pulpits ought to be treated. I made a rule that there would always be an open Bible on this pulpit and that it wouldn't be used for any secular thing, that it would only be used for God's Word, and that there would always be an open Bible on this pulpit. And I don't always remember, but Tom usually remembers. So when I got here tonight, the pulpit Bible that's on the shelf down here was open to the book of Daniel. And I thought, that's not a lucky accident. You did that on purpose, didn't you? Okay, all right. Turn to the book of Daniel. And here's my thinking on this. At first, I thought, well, we will only read the parts of Daniel that are kind of pertinent to what we've been studying in 2 Kings because, my thinking was, because we've already done the eschatological portions in our eschatology study. And then I started thinking about how long ago that was. So that was probably... 12, 13 years ago, so I shouldn't just assume that everybody has heard the eschatology teaching and is therefore familiar enough with Daniel to get through it. In those days, I was working a lot out of Walverd's book, uh, which was called Daniel, the Key to Revelation, and then uh, we were also looking at Sir Robert Anderson's books and And I was very into the eschatological significance of the book of Daniel. But now we're going to approach it from a historical point of view. And I've decided that rather than truncate it, we'll just read through the whole book. And if portions of it take us off onto an eschatological bent, then that's just where we're going to go. So that we can look at the book of Daniel and get a good overview of it. And then after that, I think... We're going to go after Ezekiel after that, since Daniel and Ezekiel are right about the same time period. I've told you before that it was probably around 600 B.C., 606, according to the historians, was the time that Nebuchadnezzar first took deportees out of Jerusalem. And in that first wave of deportation, it was all the high and the mighty, the well-educated, the The wealthy and the well-to-do were the people that he took out of Jerusalem that time. And then behind them, the artisans and the gardeners and the vine dressers and the people who could do that kind of work. And he left behind for a while the people who really couldn't add anything to Babylonian culture because they believed in only letting people into Babylon who could actually add something to Babylon, and I will not make a a Trump reference at this point. But the second big wave of deportees was those poorer people, because Babylon needed some time to import their own people to kind of take over the areas of Jerusalem and Judea. So that took a while, and then those people they had left there to tend the land and take care of it were then taken out, and that was Ezekiel's group. Ezekiel was taken out with the the poorer group, and Daniel was taken out with the more rich and powerful and educated group. So that puts us right about 606 B.C., and then Daniel stays in Babylon. Daniel is aware of Jeremiah's prophecies. He apparently had access to Jeremiah's writing, and that's why we took the time to look at Jeremiah prior to Daniel, because Jeremiah's writing says that they're going to go into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And so Daniel is in the Babylonian captivity for that whole 70 years. So he's an old man by the time this book is over, 
and he is actually in Babylon through Nebuchadnezzar and through Nebuchadnezzar's son and grandson and then the time of Belshazzar and the time of the Medo-Persians conquering and then the early portions of Cyrus ruling the Babylonian area. And so he's still there. And once all of that happens and he can see the 70 years coming to a close, that's when he goes to God and starts praying God's word back to him, which I think is a very good way to pray. Know what God has already said and then just go ask God to do what he said he's going to do. And so Daniel prays to God that he will keep his word, that it'll only be 70 years. And that's when the angel, if you're familiar with Daniel at all, that's when the angel comes to him and gives him a 70 times 7 prediction, 490 years of what's going to happen again with Israel. So that's all part of the book. He's, he's there in Babylon getting these visions, interpreting these dreams. Unlike the other prophets who kind of say, thus saith the Lord, and then speak for the Lord, he has more visions that he writes and, and he sees the future in sort of apocalyptic ways. Now, Daniel is remarkably, remarkably accurate, though. The book of Daniel predicts that after Nebuchadnezzar, that it is the Medo-Persians who are going to conquer. And then he predicts that after the Medo-Persians, it's going to be the Greeks that come in. And he even sees a figure of Alexander the Great, the leader of the Grecian armies and and he sees the vision as a leopard with wings. He moves so fast he barely touches the ground as he sweeps across the Middle East and Europe. And, and then, according to best legend, Alexander the Great ends up sitting outside the walls of Babylon. So Babylon's a very central figure here. And that uh, apparently it was a cause of great concern for Alexander the Great he was, according to legend, weeping at the gates of Babylon because there were no more worlds to conquer. And he was in his early 30s, which makes me feel like I've done nothing with my life. <laughs> and then Daniel accurately predicts that it's going to be the Romans who are going to conquer the Grecians. That exactly happens. And then he talks about a ten-toed, loose confederation of nations that comes after the uh, Roman Empire. And so that caused people to say, well, Daniel is so accurate. In fact, the specificity of Daniel includes things like battles between the king of the north and the king of the south, who are identif identified accurately as two of Alexander's generals, because Daniel predicts that Alexander's power is not going to go to his own posterity that it's going to be divided up four ways. And that's exactly what happened in history. Even though Alexander did have a son, his son didn't live very long and he never gained his father's power. Instead, his kingdom, the Alexandrian kingdom, was divided up among his four generals and the person who got the northern kingdom that was including Jerusalem and Israel and that whole area was a fellow named Seleucus Nicator. And then Egypt, just below Jerusalem, and that area of northern Africa and all that, became the kingdom of Ptolemy. And so there was the Ptolemaic kingdom, and there was the Seleucid kingdom, and they become the king of the north and the king of the south. And then Daniel predicts the next hundred years of wars between them, and who's going to win each one of them? And how the kingdom is going to ultimately center in on the Seleucid portion of the Alexandrian kingdom, that it's out of that area that there's going to come the little horn, the man who understands dark sentences, the person we would call the Antichrist. So, so Daniel gets very apocalyptic <laughs> toward the end. And one of the amazing things about the book of Daniel is that other than two chapters, and I believe that's right, there are only two chapters of the book of Revelation that don't directly quote from or allude to something in the book of Daniel. And Ezekiel and Daniel have a, a tremendous amount of influence over John's visions on Patmos. I said all that by way of introduction just to say because Daniel is so accurate in what he predicts, 
naturally, there were people who said, well, he can't have really written it then during the Babylonian Empire, because there's no way during the Babylonian Empire that he could have known this amount of history. And of course, there have always been critics. Well, really, ever since the Reformation and the Enlightenment, there has been textual criticism. And when I say that word, I don't mean it negatively, like criticism like, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. You know, that, not, not that kind of criticism. It was the seriousness about the text that caused people to really spend time in the text, look at the various different extant copies, compare copy to copy, see where the textual variants were, see where the, the consistent readings are. That's what I mean by textual criticism. Well, around the end of the 19th century, there was two different forms of criticism that were dominant, and they were called higher and lower critics. And that doesn't mean higher like I'm better and lower like I'm sludge. Higher criticism had to do with history. And so we would think of it as historical criticism, taking a look at the things in the Bible and trying to put them into their historic context. And can we find any other literature of that time period that would validate the things that the Bible says about it and that kind of criticism? And then the lower criticism was what we would now call textual criticism. And so the higher critics, especially in Germany in the late 1800s, really started to hold sway over their opinions on the Bible and especially the Old Testament because they started saying that there wasn't a lot of historical veracity to several of the books in the Old Testament simply because they couldn't find corresponding documentation that would validate the history that the Bible spells out. And so the higher critics savaged the book of Daniel and said that there's just no way Daniel could have known those things. And so the higher critics concluded that Daniel was not written during the Babylonian captivity. It was written about 200 years before Christ to 100 years before Christ during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, during the time that God is quiet, the intertestamental period, really late in the Greek Empire, in the beginning of the Roman Empire, that that's when Daniel was forged into the form that we have it now, and that it was forged after the fact to make it look like it was a prophetic book, but that it wasn't really. Now, there are a couple problems with this, not the least of which is that Daniel is mentioned in other books of the Old Testament, like Ezekiel. And then Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus mentions Daniel the prophet. You get to Matthew 24, and Jesus starts speaking eschatologically. They're asking him, what are the signs of your coming and the signs of the end? And he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, either Jesus was fooled by a forgery, or he actually believed that Daniel was a prophet. Then... Eight years before I was born, so we're talking about very recent history now, 1947, I believe, was the first discovery of the scrolls in the Qumran caves that have come to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls have not only fragments, pieces of books of the Bible, books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, but also had several documents of just daily life there in the Middle East during that period of time. Uh, some people have speculated that, that it may have been the Essenes that put these things away and hid them in the caves so that they wouldn't be found by the incursion of the Romans as they were conquering through that area. But in any case, these documents, these scrolls, include whole chapters of the Old Testament that read exactly like the versions we have today, which is quite remarkable. Now, if they were planted in these caves around 200, 100 AD, that's the time that Daniel's supposed to have been writing according to the higher critics, which means that then the Essenes or whoever put the documents into pottery and stuck them in a cave for safekeeping, they were either completely fooled by what they knew was a forgery or the book of Daniel actually predates 
the time that the higher critic said that it was written, which shoves it back into antiquity again. So by the time you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the time you look at Jesus saying Daniel the prophet, by the time you look at the way that Daniel is referred to in other places in the Old Testament, it's kind of impossible looking at the weight of evidence to conclude that what we're seeing is actually a forgery. I am convinced that it was written just like it says during the time of the Babylonian captivity. In fact, we're even told chapter 1, verse 1, exactly when he was transported into Babylon. He says it was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That's when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's, that's the first verse, which either makes that a really, really clever lie, because it fits perfectly into the historic timeline and accurately is the time of the deportation of the Jews into Babylon. That's either a very clever forger or it's Daniel telling the truth about what actually happened. Now let me say one more quick thing and then we'll, we'll dig in. We're just going to try to look at the first chapter. We may go into chapter two. The first chapter is really just like the opening scene of the movie when you watch any kind of movie, the first thing you see is an establishing shot. It kind of shows you where this action's about to take place, whether that's you know, downtown Paris or a, a dark alley or someone's living room. There's always an establishing moment. That's really what first chapter is here. It's Daniel explaining how it is that he and his three friends ended up in Babylon. But the point I want you to understand is that if Daniel is genuine, and I am convinced it is, if Daniel actually had these prophetic visions at the time and in the place that he said he did, and given the phenomenal accuracy of it, then we can trust that the rest of it, which includes a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, a phrase that even Jesus picks up and repeats in Matthew, this idea of there being the little horn who is the successor of all the kings of the north, that there is going to be a man understanding dark countenances who, who's going to rule the Middle East again and have worldwide influence. That idea is completely and utterly valid based on everything else that Daniel has said accurately and precisely. And, and we just can't argue with it, despite the fact that there are plenty of people trying to argue with it because it just doesn't fit into the modern amillennial mode but it fits very well with everything we believe about both God's sovereignty and his ability to tell the future in advance and God predicting, God announcing, God declaring that there was going to be a time of trouble yet coming and a, a man of sin that was going to rise that Jesus talks about and Paul talks about and John talks about in the New Testament. The foundation for all of that is in the book of Daniel. So there's no way to read the book of Daniel and not take the time to look at all that. We're going to have to kind of study our way through all that, but it's worth it. So chapter 1, verse 1, that's the introduction. Almost, that's almost the end of the introduction. Let, let, me, tell you, let me tell you one more thing, because I find this fascinating. Uh, I, I'm always looking for what I call internal indications of the truth of the Bible. I'm always looking for anything I can say, well, if this were not true, they wouldn't have said that. And the, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the three Gospels. And there are folks who argue that the Gospel of Mark was written for a largely Gentile audience, and it might well have been. Now, to any Jew who is steeped in Old Testament writing and history... They know that in the book of Daniel, he refers to a particular son of God type character who he refers to over and over again as the son of man, which is a real important messianic nomenclature, the son of man. He's not just going to be the son of God, which is impressive enough, but that he's actually going to be on the planet so that he's going to be called the son of man. And that comes out of Daniel more than just about anywhere else in the Old Testament. And in Mark's gospel, he uses the phrase son of man more often than the other three do. 
including Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience, or John, who's writing to a Jewish audience. Now, if you're a liar and you're just making up stuff in order to start a religion and put yourself at the top of it, if you're lying about what Jesus actually did and who he said he was and what his importance is in Jewish history, if you're writing to a Gentile audience, you're not going to use the phrase son of man over and over again because to a Gentile, the phrase son of man means he's a son of man. He's just a guy. He's just a child of a human mother. It just means son of man. But because Jesus actually walked around talking about himself to a Jewish audience and calling himself the son of man, Mark, in his honesty, quotes what Jesus actually said, even though it's going to hurt his story, even though it's going to ring more hollow to his Gentile audience. It would have been better, and and I think he would have done this if he were lying, he would have said, and he called himself the Son of God. Now, that would be much more impressive to the Gentile who doesn't know the book of Daniel. But to any thoroughgoing, well-versed, scriptural Jew who has the Old Testament, which was the only testament in their day, anybody who has the scriptures knows that in the book of Daniel, that phrase, the son of man, is one of the most powerful messianic names in the whole Bible. And Mark stuck with that. And I just find that fascinating. So, okay, now now the intro is over. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Hold on to that, because Nebuchadnezzar is responsible not only for taking people out of Jerusalem, but he takes some of the vessels out of the house of God. Why is that important? Because these are vessels that have been made holy. They have been sanctified, set apart for God's exclusive use. And you can't use them for any kind of common purpose. And later in the book, Belshazzar is going to be having a feast. He's together with all his friends, and they're drinking and partying. And he decides, hey, get those vessels that came out of the temple in Jerusalem And let's drink and party out of those. Big mistake. Huge mistake. Because it's while they're doing that, that God brings a hand writing on the wall, letting them know that they've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. So keep a hold of the fact that not only were people taken out, but also the vessels were taken out. And then I like the way that Daniel 2 says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. This was not a mistake. This was not an accident. This was God's determinate counsel to send Judah into the land of the Chaldeans. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and who had the ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. In the book of Daniel, it's one of the few books that you find in the Old Testament that is not solely in the Hebrew language, because Daniel was educated in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. But notice because he's the king, and boy, isn't this the way kings act, The king says, I need some guys to 
to be my cupbearer and, you know, get some of the Jews to come in here and be my servants and work in my court. And, and they're going to be in my presence. And so, therefore, find the best-looking, best-educated young men with zero defects because if I have to look at them, then I want that to be a pleasant experience. <laughs> and so go and get the best-looking Jews you can find and get them ready. And that readiness was a matter of years. Ashpenaz didn't just go find some young men and go, you, you, and you, come on, you're working for the king now. They had to be prepared to go into the king's presence. Verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. The idea behind giving them the food was because the king ate the best food, the richest food, the best of the wine. And so give them that because when they come into my presence, I want them to be healthy. I want them to be, you're going to see in a minute, kind of fatted up. I want them to look like they're good, robust people. So for the next three years, give them not the food the commoners eat. Give them the food I eat. So by the time they come in my presence, they're really good-looking, healthy kids. Three years it took for that to happen. Now among them, verse 6, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, gave them Chaldean names. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, these three names, other than Belteshazzar, these three names are all names dedicated to the gods of Babylon. So he took away their names that ended in El, that had to do with the god Yahweh, and gave them names like Abednego, which means the servant of Nego, who was a god of the, the Babylonian pantheon of gods. Same with Shadrach and Meshach. Those are names dedicated to Babylonian gods. Then the commander of the officials assigned them new names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is it worth making the joke that when I was a kid, we used to call them my shack, your shack, and a bungalow? Is that worth it? Never mind. Forget it. But hey, we remembered their names. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Again, notice how often everything that happens, even down to the minutia here. I mean, okay, the commander of the officials, treated Daniel kindly. Now, you and I would think that that was just a random happenstance or he just happened to be in a good mood that day. Or, but Daniel accredits God with all of it. The other day, Micah posted on Facebook that while he was in the bank, the teller gave him a chocolate chip cookie that said Ohio State on it. <laughs> I want to know what bank this is. What bank hands out chocolate chip cookies? You got to go to the credit union to get an Ohio State chocolate chip cookie. Okay. So I, I was studying here in Daniel when, when that, I took a moment and I got on Facebook and I'm looking around and I, the picture popped right up for some reason at the top of my feed. Here's the chocolate chip cookie that he got for free for banking at this credit union. And I thought, okay, now there's a perfect example of a random act of kindness that happened in Micah's life. And it would be easy to pass that off as just happenstance. That just happened. But if we're to think the way that Daniel thinks, then everything that happens, including even some kindness that somebody does to us, is God giving favor to us, acting on our behalf. And given how crazy the world is and how mean and violent and ugly human beings can be occasionally, when you do find people who are just nice to you, especially when it doesn't benefit them at all, they're, ju they're just being kind to you, 
I try to remember to chalk that up to the favor of God, which means the favor of God got you a chocolate chip cookie. But I know, I know, I know. Joni told me the other day that she was going to bring some food to David Morris and I on Sunday night. And I thanked her, and she said, don't thank me. The Lord just put it on my heart. And I said, well, then thank the Lord for feeding me again. Because whether it's done through somebody else or whether it's done directly, it's all the favor of God when nice things happen to you. So now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths of your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. So the commander who's in charge of making sure that these guys are fattened up, Daniel is saying, I'm not going to drink the wine. and I'm not going to eat the fatty foods. He wants vegetables. He's going on a vegetarian diet here, and that's all he wants to eat. The official says to him, well, the king's going to chop my head off if I allow you to do that. And when the time comes for you to come in and line up with the other boys, if you don't look as robust and fat and healthy as them, he's going to cut my head off. So Daniel says this, verse 11, but Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, please Test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we're going to eat our vegetables. They're going to eat the fat food. In 10 days, you look at us and them, and if we don't look just like them, well, then we'll go ahead and eat the king's food. We'll do it your way. But at least give me the opportunity to do it the way that I believe is right. I've got a conviction. I'm going to just eat vegetables. I'm not going to eat from the king's table. Verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence In every branch of literature and wisdom. Here again, they're going through a three-year study in the Babylonian libraries and schools. They're being taught literature and language and philosophy and how to operate within the confines of Babylon. And yet, Daniel again gives God the credit. That yes, they were learning this stuff, but God gave them the ability. I have to brag on my son for just a moment. Oh, okay. Oh, because he realizes this and he has a pattern and I don't mean to embarrass you but he has a pattern with each of these classes that he's in right now because the way that his classes are broken up instead of taking two concurrent classes for 12 weeks he takes six intensive weeks of one class and six intensive weeks of the next class and so the beginning of every class It's like an avalanche, just all this stuff coming at him. And so he has a process he goes through. First step is panic. And then I always say the same thing to him. You're going to figure it out. You're going to be okay. And then sure enough, he does that. And uh, and he's very close to graduating with his four-year degree. And he's only gotten one B so far and everything else is A's. So he is, in fact, figuring it out. So I give him a lot of credit for it. But do you know what he says to me as often as not? He says, God let me figure it out. God was good to me. And I, I, you know, I, I've got all A's because God's giving me favor. Don't you, James? Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very thankful for the knowledge he has given me. 
So I think we can apply that to all of us. You know your own name? You know how to get home tonight? You remember your phone number? Do you know more than one language? Are you, are, do you know philosophy? Can you entertain deep thoughts? Can you, do you know how to love and be compassionate? Do you know how to, how to exercise yourself in this world in a way where people aren't pointing, jeering, and laughing at you? Well, well that's all the favor of God to you. God is allowing you to be intelligent people in the world. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them. So that's three years. In the first chapter, we just took a three-year leap. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. So think about that again. Talk about God just showing favor. God just happens. He just happens to work it out where Daniel is right with the most powerful man on the planet at that moment. A direct representative of Yahweh is in the king's court. So that when we get to the next chapter and the king has a dream and he can't remember the dream, who's right there? Daniel. And Daniel tells him what the history of the Middle East is going to be for for the next success of several kingdoms that are going to oppress Israel. He's right there to answer the questions and interpret the dreams because God providentially put Daniel right there next to the most powerful man on the planet, who even David is going to say, you're a king of kings. A title that is later used for Christ. And yet he can say, you rule over other kingdoms. You're a king over other kings. And then he says, you're even in charge of the animals. God has given you all that authority. And there's Daniel standing right next to him, which is just amazing. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of all of them, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered into the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So now chapter 1 just took a 70-year leap. So that's why I said chapter 1 is kind of like the opening scene of the movie. Let's read a little bit of chapter 2. We've got time. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Seems logical, seems rational. Tell us what the dream was, we'll give you an interpretation. We'll come up with something. But the king answered them, verse 5, and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation... You will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be turned into a dung heap. Whoops. And ASB says into a rubbish heap. I made it more colorful because I like that other translation. 
So the king, because he's the king, because he's the sovereign king of the whole Middle East, and he can do whatever he wants and has power over life and death, he makes a command. They try to get him to give them some additional information, and he says, my decree stands as my decree. I expect you to do the impossible, because only if you can tell me the dream will I know that you know the right interpretation. Because if I tell you the dream, you'll say, oh, I know what that means. Oh, yeah, that means you're going to go on a trip next week. And, you know, all your kids are going to be wonderful. And, you know, I, you can just make up anything. So he insists that they have to tell him the dream and the interpretation. Or he'll rip them apart and turn their houses into rubbish heaps. Verse 6. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. So they have a tremendous impetus to tell him his dream and the interpretation. Don't do it. Torn limb from limb. Your whole house is destroyed. Do tell me you get gifts and great honor and rewards, and the king's going to treat you great. That is plenty of impetus to do what the king says, except it's impossible. Now, many, many a preacher, and I think rightly so, has pointed out that this is very much like what the real God is like, that the God of the Bible said to the Israelites, Here's my law. Here's what I expect from you. Do it, and, and I'll protect you, and I'll put you in your land, and I'll protect you from your enemies, and take away the wild animals, land of milk and honey, early rain, late rain. I'm going to take care of everything. Don't do it. I'll kill you. I'll drive you out of your land. I'll put you into slavery. Uh, it'll be terrible for you if you don't do it. So that God, in his absolute sovereignty, told the children of Israel to do exactly what he said, and the only problem with it was, it was impossible. And so here, King Nebuchadnezzar has said, do it. You get rewarded. Don't do it. I kill you. The only problem is, it's impossible. Unless God intervenes. The same idea. I can't do the law. There's nothing I can do about the law. It's impossible. I'm going to end up with the limb-to-limb dunghouse thing. Because I can't do it. And so God is the answer. Whether that's in sending Daniel the vision he's going to send him of the dream and the interpretation, the intervention of the God who exposes secrets, or whether it's the intervention of Christ to fulfill God's command, to satisfy God's command so that people live in him, which is exactly what happens with Daniel. Daniel is going to make sure that everybody lives. So I just wanted to draw that equation there so that you don't miss it. Verse 7. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants, and then we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. Well, yeah. <laughs> of course we are. Inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until this situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Now, what I think that phrase, until the situation has changed, I think means that they wanted to buy time until he kind of forgot about it. That at this particular moment, he was really dead set on this. But if we can get him occupied with something else, maybe if he tells us the dream and then we tell him a couple of reasonable interpretations, then maybe this will just pass by us and we'll be fine. And he'll forget about it and go back to doing that, that emperor thing he does and we won't have to worry about the dream. But he's, he's firm on this one. He stated twice, I'm firm on it. You tell me or you die. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, 
There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing that the king demands is difficult. Anybody got a King James on him? You got your King James over there, Marilyn? What's verse 11 say? It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling place is not in the flesh. It's a difficult thing that the king requires. Now, I don't know how many of you remember this, but just a couple of years ago, uh, our friend Barney Johnson was here, and he preached that text, and he applied it to God requiring holiness and perfection from us. I know that we repent of our ways and that we live holy and righteous lives and that we worship him continually in spirit and truth. And he kept saying, it's a difficult thing the king requires. This is what he requires of us and we can't do it. And that is the necessity of the intercessor. That is the necessity of Christ himself doing what is impossible to us. We can't possibly do the things that the sovereign king requires. But he still requires it. You still have to do it or I will definitely kill you. And if you do it, I'll give you rewards and I'll take care of you. You'll be with me in heaven. Hey, that's a pretty good deal. Except we can't do it. And just like the magicians and the soothsayers said, there's not a man on earth that can do what you're requiring. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except, small g, plural, except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. They're still wrong here because there aren't any of the gods of Babylon that were going to be able to do this. Because of this, verse 12, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Okay, now everybody's going to die unless somebody intercedes. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon, he answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So apparently Daniel was not there. The Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the magicians, all of those Babylonians were there and admitted that they just can't do it. So they're all going to be killed And now Arioch is explaining to Daniel what the king has said and why everybody's going to die. Verse 16, so Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. You're going to find out in a few moments that it is then told directly to the king that there is someone who can interpret his dream. So where it says here that Daniel requested of the king, that means that he did it through emissaries, through other people who could get to the king. He didn't go in himself and make this request. So then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. That seems like a good place to stop. What's going to happen? But the next section already gets us into prophetic and eschatological stuff and the dream interpretation and Way back when, in the days that we were studying eschatology, I I made a lot of handouts and charts that showed the combinations of all these things, and many of those things were lost in a uh, 
and a lightning strike years ago that completely burned out my computer, the motherboard, the hard drives, everything. And so uh, I lost a lot of it, but some of it I've still got. I'll have to look around and see if any of those handouts still exist. But next week, we won't be here. So remember that. Next week, we won't be here. Don't come here. <laughs> next week, if you want to go to church on Wednesday night, go to Gladeville. Tuesday night, you can go hear David preach, who will be here on Sunday. So be here on Sunday for David Morris. And then don't be here Wednesday, because the building will be dark. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is the conference in Gladeville. So come hang out over there and uh, fellowship with them and eat with them, and you'll really enjoy it. Okay, so that's Daniel. Any questions so far? Yes. What? Okay, so... Daniel and his three friends are in a three-year training period after they've been brought to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel, too, starts out in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He has this dream. Mm -hmm. So I am thinking, does this mean that Daniel and his friends are still in their probationary period? Could well be. And that's why Daniel wasn't present? Yeah. When all the wise men were there. And why Daniel had to go through emissaries to get the king to stop. And why we're going to see next week that the Chaldeans and the soothsayers have to tell the king, there is someone who can do this. This is Daniel. And so apparently it was before he was even presented to the king. And chose. Yes, he seemed to be pretty highly rewarded yeah. at the end of this. Yeah. Practically second only to Nebuchadnezzar by the time this is all said and done. Very similar to Joseph. Very similar to Joseph. The parallels between Daniel and Joseph are very significant. Very much like God who knows how to lift people up and take people down. Including Nebuchadnezzar. Including Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, we're going to see him take a dive in this book, too. <laughs> take a dive. That's the phrase I went with. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.